All right, I want to dismiss our, our kids, pre-K and kindergartners, to Children's Church, uh, Kids Connection. You guys can go out these back doors and into room three where they'll be hosting you there. If you're not already there, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And we're just going to jump right into reading our text this morning. It's an important one for sure. We're going to start in verse 28 and read to verse 34. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is the one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, No one dared to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. So we find ourselves right in the middle of Jesus' Passion Week. This is his final week leading up to the cross and the resurrection. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He has occupied the courts of the temple All of this day, the day just before this day, he had ransacked the temple. He shut down its crooked, exploitive business operation, all the buying and selling and money changing that was happening in the court of the Gentiles. Jesus cleared it all out. And now he's back the next day, and he's been teaching in the temple. And in the course of his teaching, he has been hit with wave after wave after wave of examination from Israel's religious leadership. The formal name of the leadership body that's coming against Jesus is the Sanhedrin. That's a group made up of 70 men plus the high priest. And those 70 men are primarily from three religious groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And in turn, with their own niche issues, these three groups question Jesus. The Pharisees question Jesus over over Roman authority and taxation. They, they want to accuse Jesus of being an insurrectionist against Rome. The Sadducees, they question Jesus about the resurrection. And the Sadducees, they don't care if Jesus appears to be an insurrectionist. They simply want Jesus to look like an idiot, like a fool. And now today, in this passage, it's the scribes. And the scribes are examining how Jesus interprets the law, which perfectly fits their interests. The scribes were also called teachers of the law. They spent all their time studying and copying the Old Testament scriptures. If anyone in Israel knew about the law, 
cared about the law, stood guard over the interpretation of the law, it was the scribes. And so the scribes come to Jesus with a question about he, about how Jesus interprets the commands of God. Just as the Pharisees have done, just as the Sadducees have done, the scribes come to pass judgment on Jesus. But, but in what we just read together, we see that right there at the end of the discussion, Jesus makes a judgment about the scribe. He says something very powerful to him. It, it probably got your attention. Verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, that phrase is used 117 times in the Gospels. What is the kingdom of God? Well, in a very real sense, the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the story of the kingdom of God. We have on the opening page of the Bible a story of creation, of God speaking and acting and making and and being supremely sovereign over every single thing. And in doing all of that, he makes a special part of his creation. He, He makes mankind to have dominion over the world that he has made. But very early in the story, there's a rebellion. And in that rebellion, the kingdom God established is damaged. Satan persuades Adam to join a rebel kingdom, and that rebel kingdom is fundamentally opposed to God's kingdom. But, as you know the story, hope is not lost. And that's because immediately after the fall, immediately, God gives to Adam and Eve a promise It's there in Genesis 3.15, a gospel promise was given that said that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So a divine Messiah, an anointed one from God, will come and destroy the purposes of Satan and put down his rebel kingdom, and in doing so, God will reestablish his kingdom. And that kingdom brought in by the Messiah, that is where God's rule and his reign will be preeminent and mankind will flourish as originally intended. And so the whole Old Testament is spent anticipating how God is going to bring about his kingdom. Is he going to establish it through a family? Is he going to establish it through religion? Is he going to establish it through military might? Is he going to establish it through a monarchy? And you move through the Old Testament and you see how each of these earthly institutions falls short of God's ideal kingdom. But at the same time, you see types and shadows of how God is actually going to establish his rule and his reign once more. And as the Old Testament closes... It ends with the promise that the day of the Lord, that future kingdom, is still ahead. And so after Malachi, at the last book of the Old Testament, there is 400 years of silence. No prophets from God, no word from God, no sign of his kingdom. But then a man named John the Baptist shows up. And John is crying out in the wilderness, and central to his message is that the kingdom of God is near. 
And the New Testament tells us that everyone goes out to hear John. Everyone goes out to repent and prepare their hearts for this kingdom. And then Jesus Christ shows up. And the first words Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Mark, they're found in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what we learn as we read the Gospel is that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. And so the book of Mark is an ongoing demonstration of how Jesus is the good, righteous, and powerful king. He establishes kingly authority over every realm of nature, over life and religion and the spirit world and politics and agriculture and doctrine and and everything. And what we discover as we read about Jesus is that is that Jesus is the kind of king we all long for. He's the king we've never been able to find or, or elect, but, he's, but he proves that, that he's the king that we want and we need. I'm reminded of a line from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy. He says, The hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. That's Jesus. So when Jesus says to his disciples early on in the book of Mark, when he says, come follow me, and then he says to the crowds in chapter 8, come take up your cross and follow me, and then he says to the rich young ruler in chapter 10, go sell everything you have and, and follow me, all along the way Jesus is saying, follow me because I'm the king you've been looking for. Follow me because I have authority over everything. Follow me not only because I have the right to rule over you, but because I'm going to the cross for you. I'm going to die for you. I've got the healing hands. Real life can't be found apart from me. I'm the king. Not Caesar, not Herod. Jesus is king. And so as we've studied this book together, we can't help but then conclude together, man, what a good king Jesus is. You guys have probably heard a portion of a sermon that was preached in 1976 by a guy named S.M. Lockridge. He was an African-American pastor from San Diego, and he preached this sermon in Detroit. And the section of it that's often pulled out is labeled, My King. I'm just going to read it to you, and, and I think you'll be stirred, especially if you've seen the video or, 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 or had it passed along at another time. The Bible says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know him today. 
He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah, that's my king. That is my king. Amen. And this passage, this encounter with this scribe, tells us how we can have Jesus as our king. How we can have citizenship in the kingdom. And that's my outline for this morning. The keys to his good rule and reign in your life are sincerity, love, and then Jesus himself. So let's look at those three keys to the kingdom. Look at verse 28 you immediately see that there is something different about this man's approach to Jesus. First, there's something personal about this encounter. In the previous three encounters, Jesus' questioners, they came in groups. But we see that this man comes alone. The text says one of the scribes. He's by himself. There's a sense in which he represents only himself. And then second, from the outset of this scene, the scribe, he acknowledges Jesus as a great teacher. The other groups, they mocked Jesus as a teacher. This man, he genuinely likes what Jesus has to say. The text says that the words that Jesus had used with with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had pleased the scribe. Remember, he was a teacher of the law. So, so the wisdom, the, the alacrity, the, the competence with which Jesus had put away and rebuked these other leaders, man, they had really impressed the scribe. And then third, we see that he's asking Jesus to do something that a lot of rabbis were asked to do, which was synthesize the law into one concise statement. The questions from the other religious leaders, they are described as traps. Mark tells us they're trying to catch Jesus in his words. But we don't get that impression from this scribe. There is nothing out of the ordinary about his question. This was common rabbinical type dialogue between Jesus and the scribe. So when the scribe asks which commandment is the most important of all, 
He's not asking Jesus to rank the commands and give him the number one commandment. He's asking Jesus to condense the commands of God into the kind of commandment that encapsulates all of them. He's saying, give me the foundational command, the one command that all the others can rest upon. And here's why this is important. This was important because according to the scribes, there were 613 commands. Biblical laws, but also biblical interpretations that became commands, 613. You say, well, why would they come up with a number like 613? Because that's how many Hebrew letters there were in the Ten Commandments. If you look at the Ten Commandments in Hebrew, Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 17, there's exactly 613 Hebrew letters. So they said, from that, there's got to be 613 laws. It's pretty silly, but that's kind of how they rolled. And then they concluded that 248 of the commands would be affirmatives, and 365 would be negatives, one for every day of the calendar year. So they, they concocted this whole scheme... And along the way, because 613 commands is a lot of commands to have to remember and obey, they would try to condense all of those laws into one comprehensive command. So this scribe that comes to Jesus, quite sincerely, I think, he has seen the way Jesus refutes and rebukes all those who examine him, and he thinks to himself, I bet this rabbi has the best summary statement of the law that we could ever find. I'm going to ask him for it. Not a trap, not a smokescreen, a real sincere question about what God requires of man and of him. And just for a minute, contrast this somewhat sincere approach to Jesus with how people in today's world approach God. People today will reject God because there's something about God they don't like. Their method is to always keep God in the dock. They avoid what God might require of them, and instead, they put forth all kinds of smoke screens and questions. You know, why is there suffering, and, and why does God allow war, and, and why would he let my father die, and, and how could you let a tsunami happen, and how could you let Ebola happen, and, and what have you got against gay people, and question after question after question, and, and there are events and evils and tragedies in the world that they don't like, so they rage against God. They demand answers from God, and you know what? These aren't awful questions. The world is complicated. I get that. But most people who ask these questions, they're not really looking for reasons to believe. They're looking for reasons not to believe. Always looking for little loopholes through or around the Christian faith. You know, never do they ask, God, what might you want from me? God, how can I know you and your love? No, all their energy is spent on one or two issues that to them make the Christian faith untenable. They think that if there was a God, it would be necessary that he agree with everything that they believe about the world. You can see how arrogant that kind of thinking is. And so by putting the spotlight on God, this keeps them from ever putting the spotlight on their own hearts. These are men and women who are not sincere in finding God, only sincere in keeping themselves as God. And I don't think we put the scribe in that category. 
There's a marked difference in his approach to Jesus. He is sincere. So as we move to the second point, we, we see the answer that Jesus gives. Sincere question from the scribe. The answer here, we have this priority on love. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second command is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God, you'll obey him. If you love God, you'll love your neighbor. All obedience to God comes back to whether or not you love God. God. And we come up with all sorts of motives for all sorts of things, but when it comes to your relationship with God, everything hinges on whether or not you love him. You must love God. And as we look at the response, we actually see that this is not new material. Jesus' answer is from the Old Testament. He answers from Deuteronomy 6 and from Leviticus 19. He says, the synthesized command of God is this. I'm going to reach back to the Old Testament, Mr. Scribe. You're going to recognize these two things. Love God with all that you are and love people as you love yourself. Let's look at each of those loves and see where they flow from and then how they work out. Jesus roots his command to love God, I said, in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. These verses are called the Shema. And they're called the Shema because the Hebrew word for hear or listen is the word shema, and that's the first word in verse 4, is hear, listen. And this shema would have been the most often repeated phrase in the Jewish faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. No Old Testament verse would have come out of the mouth of a Jew more often than this one. This is like our John 3.16, All Jews knew this verse, they repeated this verse, they honored this verse, they said it when they woke up in the morning, when they lie down at night, it framed their prayers, it framed their greetings, they would put this verse at the entrance to their houses, and within that verse, the Lord our God is one Lord, you have a fairly robust doctrine of God, just in one little sentence. This is the cornerstone of monotheism, our Lord is one Lord which is so important for the Jews to remember. When Moses wrote Deuteronomy, where this verse is found, the Jews, they are poised to enter their promised land. They've been wandering for 38 years, but now they're about to enter the land. And so Moses, he's he's coming back and saying, I need to remind you guys of the commands of God. And he starts with this command. Because they're about to go into this land, and this land, like the rest of the world, was polytheistic, which means there were many gods, many nations. Every nation had its own set of deities and idols and ways of worship, and the Shema here is striking against all of that. The Shema heralds that there is only one God. Therefore, you don't need to worry about dividing your allegiance. You only need to love one God. And because there's only one God, You need to love him with all of your capacities, heart, soul, mind, strength. You don't have to give your heart to one God and then your soul to another God and your mind to another God. No, no, no. This is very simple. There is one God, and he demands all of you. Demands all of your love, which is perfectly reasonable. It makes sense that love is at the center of all true worship and obedience because God is himself Love. God is love. 
And there's an interesting word used for one here. When it says one Lord, there's a Hebrew word for one that does mean singular. But here, this word is not that word. The word used here means a compound unit. It's the same word used of Adam and Eve when the two became one flesh. And so what we have here is a hint at the triune nature of God. And why is the Trinity important when we talk about God and love? Because God would not fundamentally be love if he were not triune. God has eternally existed as a community. He has eternally existed in relationship. The Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son. And it is on that basis and only on that basis that we can speak of God being love. God did not create you and I. He did not create human beings to have something to love. No, he has lovingly existed within the Trinity for all of eternity. He does not create us and then now, boom, he has something to love. No, his perfect love was enjoyed, was never wanting, never needing, always gloriously communicating within the unity and the distinction that is the three persons that make up the Godhead. And that's been going on infinitely because he is an infinite being and he's infinitely lovely. And that should blow your mind. It blows my mind. And what also blows my mind is that when God calls us to love him, he's calling us into that triuneness. Not that we become God, but he's calling us into his character, into his makeup, into his essence, calling us into that essential character of his, calling us into his life and being. And that is why all obedience flows from genuine love for God. This is why all the commands come back to a love for God. You cannot be loving God and be sinning against God. You can't. This is the basis for one of my favorite quotes from St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, Love God and do as you please. Love God and do as you please. If you get things in the right order, your love for God, then all the rest of your life will line up. But here's what I also know. You can come to church your whole life and not love God. You can know a lot of Scripture and not love God. You you can give a lot of money and not actually love God. You can be a pretty moral guy and not love God. 18th century pastor, theologian, Jonathan Edwards. Edwards' grandfather was the most renowned, most famous preacher in all of New England, a man named Solomon Stoddard. And Edwards grew up, he, he knew sound theology, he knew the word, even agreed with the truth found in the scripture. He enrolled at Yale College around age 13, he began his Master of Art studies there around age 17, but Edwards did not consider himself to be a genuine Christian until he was around 18 years of age. Why? Because it wasn't until then that he would say that he truly loved Jesus Christ. I think of John Wesley. John Wesley, he came into 
the, the priesthood at age 25. He, around age 30, he came over to Georgia, to the Americas, to do some mission work and revival work among the Indians in, in the southern colonies. And he got frustrated with it. And on the ride home on the ship, he got in with some Moravian Christians and began to finally start to understand and get stirred as to what it means to love God. And then a few years later, as he's walking by the church at Aldersgate, he finally has this, what he calls this warming, this sense of, oh, wow, this is what it means to love God and serve him and give him my whole life. To obey the commands of God, we have to love God. The second part of Jesus' answer is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19.18. There's a lot of people who come along and say, oh man, fulfilling this means that you need to love yourself. You need to work on loving yourself. You need to learn to love yourself so that then you can love other people, which that's not true at all. You don't need to love yourself more. None of us do. You already love yourself. That truth is embedded in the command. You already love yourself. Think about it. Who, who'd you dress this morning? Who, who, who do you feed every day? Whose self-interest do you tirelessly protect? Your own. We don't have to learn to love ourselves. Our whole lives are, are consumed with taking care of ourselves. What our Lord is saying is treat other people with the same detailed care that you treat yourself. This is not a call for self-love. It's a call to love others the way you already love you. How are you doing with that? Some of you do pretty good with that. I've seen you in action. Others of you maybe not so good. Some of us are a little confused by it. Meaning we'll travel, you know, halfway around the world in the name of loving our neighbor, but ironically, we've never even talked to our actual neighbor. <laughs> you familiar with that? But with this answer, the scribe is incredibly pleased. He says, you're right. You can actually interpret his response as a beautiful answer. He then repeats Jesus' words back to him, but he also adds a line. You probably saw it. He says, these things are much more than, than all the whole burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And I hope you don't miss that part. Because the scribe, the scribe and Jesus, they are in the courtyard of the temple. They're in the midst of the biggest feast on the Jewish calendar, Passover, this is just a day or two prior to about a quarter million lambs being sacrificed for the families of Israel there in the temple. And the scribe, he sees through all of it. And he says, it's all worthless unless you love God and love people. He grasped the truth that even external rituals will never be enough to save the soul. It's not enough to be religious or to do religious things for a sinner to be saved. He must love God and worship Him out of that love. Which leads to Jesus' final word to the scribe. And this is our last point. When Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, you're close, but you're not quite 
there. You're a decent man. You're a religious man. This is a man who takes the commands of God seriously, serious enough to seek the insight of Jesus. But what does the law ultimately do to us? The law condemns us. We look at the law of God, we look at the commands of God, and our realization is, whoa, those are impossible for me. And here's the deal. That's why he gives them to us. To show us that we need a Savior that can live the righteous life that we could never live. And for this man, on this day, that Savior is standing right in front of him, talking to him. He is not spiritually far away from the kingdom. And he's not physically far away either. He's standing right next to the king. What must he do to enter the kingdom of God? Follow Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Throw all his deadly doing down and appeal for the mercy of of Jesus. Think of the hymn writer who said, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Does this message find any of you in this man's condition? You've been around the things of God, but maybe you've never really been saved by God. You've done all the things people told you to do, but you've never really trusted Jesus for salvation. You know about God, but maybe you don't know really what it means to love him. You recognize the foundational nature of these commands, but you recognize your actual inability to obey them. Maybe you're close to the kingdom, but being close to the kingdom is not being in the kingdom. Liking Jesus is not following him. And we don't know, we don't know if this scribe ever made it in. Perhaps he did, perhaps he didn't. But you can know if you will. You can know if you will. You can follow Christ. You can trust in Christ. You can recognize the sin in your own heart and life and recognize what he did on your behalf. And as that truth unravels you, I guarantee you it will put a love for God in you that you would have otherwise not known. When you understand the depths at which you lie there in your sin and the extent to which God's triune love the plan of the Father executed by the Son and sealed by the Holy Spirit, the way in which that works to draw you into relationship with God would give you a love for God and a desire to worship God that actually can draw you to a place where this command is not damning to you, it is lovely to you. And your life's mission, your striving will be spent in loving God with all of you, all that you are, and the overflow of that will be loving your neighbor in a way that you never thought possible.
Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your rich word. We thank you for this encounter with this scribe who sincerely, we think, comes to Jesus. And the command is to love him. The command is to put everything, put all all his stock in the person and work of Jesus. If there's somebody here that has not put their stock, has not transferred their trust from whatever it is they're living for to, to Jesus, I pray that they would do that today. And God, as we think about what it means to love you, keep us away from some sort of syrupy, saccharine kind of love and help us to look at what you mean by love, which is bleeding sacrifice, which is giving our lives away unto you and to others. Thank you for this time and this people, this place that we've been able to gather. Bless us as we unleash ourselves into this community and into the week ahead, ambassadors for you and for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.